Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. 1 Peter chapter 1. And over the last two Sundays, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we started working our way verse by verse uh, through this chapter. And we didn't get very far, did we? But what we have found is that we've been swimming in the deep end of the theological pool. And I know for some people, you feel very comfortable in the deep end, and for others, you've gotten a little nervous. And I just want to say a few preliminary things about the deep end that we've been swimming in. Firstly, it's okay. It's really okay to be challenged. It's okay to, to, to be uh, stretched in our thinking. And it's okay not to fully grasp the infinite mind of a holy God. That's part of the reason why we worship Him is because we can't limit Him to our capacities. He's way beyond us. As long as we stick to the boundaries of the pool of Scripture... And it is a huge pool, and there is a shallow end with some stairs, and if you feel more comfortable there, it's fine. You can go play there and swim there. You're going to get just as wet. Or you could come to the deep end for a little swim there and and feel out of your depth in some ways, and then you can make your way back to the shallow end. That's okay as long as we're within the boundaries of Scripture, and we allow the Bible to shape our theology, not our emotions, not our humanistic worldviews, not our democratic kind of pulling of our hearts. You know, we, we Westerners are so shaped by our culture, we need to be aware that we're not processing theology through our emotions. And so I want to just add a few things because there's so much that, that we looked at in the last few Sundays that I want to just throw in a couple of uh, clarifying points, specifically around the doctrine of election, which is what we've been talking about. And that is that throughout the Bible, we find that there are two very important truths that run parallel to one another. Right from the beginning, in the opening chapter in Genesis, God said, God created, let there be light. And so there's no doubt as to who's sovereign. There is no other sovereign. There is no other God. There is no other being. The eternal God from eternity past decided in a moment to create. And so the sovereignty of God is one of these themes that runs throughout Scripture. And He's not just sovereign over all creation in terms of material things. He's also sovereign over all the spiritual realm. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And to Jesus, He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And that includes people. People are included in the creation of God. And so God is sovereign over all things. But the other truth that runs parallel from the beginning is when God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat from this tree. And so we see human responsibility, which also runs parallel throughout all of Scripture, that human beings are responsible for their actions. And so the dilemma often is, well, how do we put the sovereignty of God over all things and human responsibility, how do we put these two things together? And the answer is, We're not meant to. They're not a contradiction. They are compatible. And in the sense that they're compatible, they do not contradict one another. God is able to reconcile these two things. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, these two truths don't need to be reconciled because in the Bible they are friends. Friends don't need reconciliation. 
The sovereignty of God and human responsibility are both clearly taught in Scripture. Another analogy that Spurgeon used was that of two ropes. If you and I walked into this room today, and as you walked into the room, you saw a big rope hanging over here and another big rope hanging over there, you would assume that there are two ropes because that's what we see. We see rope number one and rope number two. But in the eternal mind of God above the ceiling, what we don't see, actually this is one rope. That stretches over and comes down. And so from our perspective, that's what we see in the Bible. These two truths running parallel. Rope number one, God's sovereignty, including salvation. The Bible is clear. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so from before the foundation of the world, God knows who will be saved. That's rope number one. Rope number two is human responsibility, where we read things like this in the Bible. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. How will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, you might say, well, but rope number one says salvation belongs to the Lord, so therefore we do nothing. No, no, no. The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. We have a responsibility to evangelize. Oh, but if God's going to save them, then why evangelize? No, no, you're misunderstanding sovereignty. How it works is God uses people to bring about his ordained ends. And so evangelism and prayer and these important God-ordained truths are not undermined by God's sovereignty, but actually are established by God's sovereignty. God ordains not only the ends, but also the means to the ends. And so prayer and evangelism are critical to our mission and our ministry. We don't know who God has elected from before the foundation of the world. We're not meant to know. Only God knows. And so we pray and we evangelize and we do mission to all people, to everyone. We don't know the timing of God. We don't know who he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, but we apply ourselves to the means. It's like saying that when Jesus emerged on the scene of his ministry, that he said things like this, come to me, all who are elect and heavy laden. No, he didn't say that. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And we do the same like Jesus. We call all to come. We preach the gospel to everyone, and the results are up to God. This is the hope we have. Imagine if the results were up to us. No, no, no. It's our job to get the gospel to people's ears. It's God's job to get the gospel to their hearts. What a foundation. What a joy. What a hope. One example, Paul Paul in Corinth in Acts 18, verses 9 through 10, he's, he's concerned, he's being persecuted, and he wants to leave Corinth. And then the Lord says to him this. He says, go on speaking. Paul, don't leave. Go on speaking. Look at what he says. For I have many in the city who are my people. What? There's so much going on there. Not everyone in the city is going to be God's people. He's got many, though, in that city who are his people. And how are they going to become his people? Paul, go on speaking. Don't just chill. Because God's sovereign, let's not do anything. No, no. Go on speaking. Preach the gospel. 
call them. So I just wanted to highlight how these things hold together. So verses 1 through 5, we looked at chapter 1, and Peter has been describing our salvation as a magnificent landscape that we look upon and we stand in awe and wonder of our election, our salvation, our regeneration, and our inheritance, this imperishable inheritance. Wow. But now the transition happens in verse 6 through 12. And rather rather than a landscape, what he introduces here to us is more of a lens, a lens through which we make sense of life. We must not forget we've been talking about elect exiles. Our relationship to God is we are his chosen people, but our relationship to the world is we are exiles. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be persecutions. We're going to be marginalized. How are we going to get through? And Peter is going to show us here that the way that we persevere is we take the privileged joy of our first name, we are elect and our surname exiles, elect exiles, and we use the first privilege to be the lens through which we analyze life. So let's read from verse 6. In this you rejoice, he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You know, the opening verse here, verse 6, introduces us to this interesting dilemma that the world loves to separate joy and sorrow. Tears and laughter. I think sometimes the best tears are the tears of laughter. Sometimes these two things don't sit well apart. Sometimes they sit well together. I don't know about you, but, but when I have a good laugh, and my close friends will know, man, I cry with laughter. Like it pours down my face. I don't know why God made me like that, but... Uh, it's quite fun, actually, you know, because I can, I can hardly see sometimes. Like, but um, the, the question of suffering and trials and difficulties is a, is, a, is a dilemma sometimes for Christians. It, at least it's one of the objections that come at us, isn't it? How can a good God allow his children to suffer? 
And if you, if you haven't asked that question, it, it's coming. <laughs> because the question of suffering and trial is not an if question, it's when. And so you don't have to live too long before you're confronted with this very dilemma. How is it that Christians can suffer? And so 1 Peter here begins to offer us a very important perspective. And this perspective is not the whole answer, but it's a critical part of the answer. It's not every question will be answered here today, but it's a very important perspective. It's going to provide a a crucial framework for us to see the hand of God in the darker, more difficult days of our lives. And so it's interesting. Did you notice how Peter moves dramatically from the ecstasy of our privilege to the agony of our reality? We who rejoice in Christ's salvation will be grieved by various trials. Wow, that was a quick transition, Peter. Peter's proposal to us, church, is an incredibly countercultural proposal. As Christians, he is suggesting that we don't just endure trials, but that we can actually experience joy through them. This is his thesis. Verse 6, have a look at it again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Rejoice and grief. How do we explain this? How do we, how do we find joy and sorrow? Surely joy only exists in the absence of sorrow. But that's not what Peter is suggesting. And if this is true, where can we find this joy? So the first point is, how do exiles rejoice in suffering? Well, firstly, a clarifying point, and we see it right in the beginning in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. Now, this is critical. The this there is not pointing us forward to the trial. It's pointing us back In light of the trial, in this, everything I've said before, everything that's gone before establishes the joy for the trial. The trial is coming. Again, it's not if, it's when. And so his point here is that no, we're not crazy people. Trials and sufferings are not nice. We do not have joy in the pain, but we see a greater purpose and we have a greater means of coping in the trial. And so it's in this, he says, we rejoice. In what? Well, in your election and in your inheritance and in your calling and in your salvation, this glorious, imperishable work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Not just Jesus, but the Father and the Son and the Spirit were involved in. In this we rejoice through the trials. He says it this way in verse 8 and 9. Rejoice with joy. Wow. You could have just said rejoice. Rejoice with joy. Joy, because it's not just any joy. This isn't happiness. This isn't circumstantial. This is rejoicing with joy. It's a particular joy that is found in God. 
Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. The world doesn't understand it. Filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Peter's proposal is that we would see the power of our salvation, the gospel work of Jesus, as the lens through which we process our trials. In other words, if God started it, which is what he's argued, then God will complete it, no matter what you're facing. God's not going to start something and then forget about you. You don't even have to question whether he loves you in the trial because he loved you first, (laughs) before you loved him. He will finish it. And so as God's elect exiles, we don't have to question his love. Which is often the question when we're going through hardship or trial or suffering is, where is God? Does he even love me? But when we look at this through the lens of our salvation, we realize he loved me first. And actually there is nothing in all of creation that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus according to Romans 8. Nothing means nothing. He even gives a few examples of life and death and sickness and sword and nakedness and peril. Nothing, he says. And so there is a real joy, a security that comes to us. Why? Because of divine love. Divine love changes everything, even how we go through trials. And so notice a few things Peter suggests. In verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, here's a a brief moment of relief. Our trials are brief, he says. A little while. Peter is assuring them that while their trials only last a little while, you know, I mean, for some people, the little while seems a little longer than a little while. For some people, it's long and it's a hard road. So, Peter, what are you talking about? I mean, are are you unaware of suffering, Peter? Well, I I doubt it, you know. We're talking about a long time ago where people properly suffered and the the, the medicine and the the cures for what they would go through were far worse than what we have today. So, Peter, are you you being ignorant or arrogant? I mean, what's this little while you're talking about? How can our trials be brief? And Peter's like, don't forget your inheritance. In light of eternity, your trials are brief. You are a mist here today, gone tomorrow. And so seen against the light of eternity, he's saying your trials are brief. They won't last. They cannot last because eternity is coming where there will be no more trials. Not only are our trials brief, but he goes on, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Now we're beginning to unpack the reason behind it. Our trials are necessary. No Christian is exempt from trials. The idea of a health and wealth gospel is absent from the Bible. And if it's linked to faith... You know, if you have enough faith, then you won't get sick and you will be rich. Then the Apostle Paul and all the apostles and Jesus himself had very bad faith. 
No Christian, this is the point, no Christian is exempt from trials. Some have more, yes, and some have less. But all will share in the sufferings of Christ. And they are necessary, Peter says. How, Peter? They are necessary, he's going to explain, to help us to grow. To grow. Martin Luther said about adversity, he says, Adversity is the very best book in my library. Wow. But thirdly, we see here that our trials are not only brief and necessary, but they are purifying. Here's the point. Verse 7, so that, underline that there, those two words, so that, highlight it, circle it, whatever you do, here is the reason. This isn't random. This is God's fatherly purpose. Behind living in a broken world. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold. That perishes though it's tested by fire. May be found to result. There's the end. In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is going to put our faith to the test. Not to destroy us. But to demonstrate That our faith is genuine. Faith is that important. Your faith, he's going to guard it. He's going to keep it. He's going to purify it. It's more important than gold. How important is your faith to you? I think sometimes we, we don't value it. Maybe we see it as a commodity that just keeps fluctuating up and down. But for God, God's Like, hey, this is probably one of the most important parts of your life. And so how am I going to guard it? How am I going to keep you in faith till the end? And part of God's design is to allow trials to grieve us. What? Really? Wow, God, this is a a countercultural plan. I mean, how did it work? Well, the analogy is clear here, isn't it? Just as gold is taken and put into a furnace, this big lump of gold, and it's heated and it's heated and it's heated, and the furnace eventually liquefies the gold, and all the waste material is then skimmed off, leaving behind only the pure gold. And likewise, God is saying, I will allow you to go through fiery trials. To burn off the greed. To to get rid of the impatience and the anger and the bitterness and the lusts. To purify your faith. So that you would cling to Christ. What's going going on in your heart when we go through trials and difficulties? I mean, you WhatsApping your friends, your pastor, your community group. Hey, please pray for me, guys. Something's happened. This this has happened. I need God. What? What are you saying? Last week you were fine. You didn't need God. Now you're saying you need God. What's better? God knows what He's doing. Sometimes we can't see it. Actually, most of the time we can't see it. But He sees it. And he's teaching us to cling to him, to find our joy in him, to take the roots of our joy out of material things and out of earthly things that perish and fade and to put them deep into things that are eternal. To help us to remember his mercy, to remember that we have a living hope. 
And here it is, the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of Christian suffering. We see it in verse 7 and we see it in verse 8. First in verse 7, we see that word glory. It's the ultimate pattern of what happened to Jesus. First suffering, but then glory. The same pattern that we see in Jesus' life will be true of your life too. And when we look at Jesus, we find a living hope because we see that if anyone was chosen and if anyone was loved and if anyone had faith and if anyone was righteous and if anyone was good, how could God allow good people to suffer? Well, there only ever was one. His name is Jesus. And he has the hope that it turned out for glory. And ours will too. And so the verse goes on in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. But what we're seeing is trials, Lord. Where are you? I can't see you. But, But yet we love you. How does this work? Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with what? Glory. Because you are processing your trial through the lens of your privilege. The lens of your position, which is I'm in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, then I will share in His sufferings. But I will also share in His glory. How do we participate in being like Christ, in being in Christ, if we do not participate, the servant is not above his master. This is profound. And so even though I don't see Jesus right now, Peter, Peter saw Jesus. Peter was up on the mountain of transfiguration. Peter was there at the tomb. Peter touched Jesus. Peter ate and drank with Jesus after his resurrection. Peter, this is a little unfair of you. We, we don't see Jesus now, Peter. How are we to get through? How are we meant to see Jesus? And this is the second part. How do elect exiles see Jesus? And it's a much shorter part, don't stress. Peter then turns from, we do not see him, yet we love him. And we're left with this thing, but I also want to see Jesus. I don't want to just see trouble. And he's like, yes, don't worry. Sometimes it's in the trouble where you're going to see Jesus most clearly. And then he mentions three groups of people. And what actually Peter does here in verses 10 to 12 is he actually lays out the privileged position, not necessarily of our salvation, but of our position in redemptive history. And so he's going to point out three groups of people throughout redemptive history, not all people, you'll see, that interacted with the word of God. And it's through the word of God that we get to see Jesus. In other words, how do we see Jesus now? You see him by hearing. The first group of people in verse 10 is the prophets. The prophets were searching. He says then, concerning this salvation, concerning this lens that we process everything through, concerning this salvation, 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. Notice they were filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ in them in the Old Testament was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, under partial revelation, this is the Old Testament prophets looking forward to the coming Messiah. They were searching. They were inquiring. They didn't have a full picture. There's not a full Bible. This is the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament hasn't even been penned and collected yet. These are the Old Testament prophets. And what are they seeing? They're seeing glimpses of Jesus through pictures and types and shadows. And they're seeing that, that the Messiah will suffer, but it will end in glory. And so we see suffering, the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant, but we see ultimate glory. And where are they seeing it? Where? Did they see Jesus, the Old Testament prophets? What's well, a trick question, isn't it, based on what I'm saying? They saw him in the Word. Not like Peter, and yet their faith was firm. And then he goes on, not only do we see the prophets, but the preachers also. Now Peter's referring to himself and the, and the apostles. It says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. That's the Old Testament prophets. In the things that, they have, that have now been announced to you, the things that we now announcing to you. The word announced there is, is, is good news, the gospel. It's been now being announced. All of the prophecies, all of the promises are now being fulfilled. Peter saw Jesus. Now Peter's writing about Jesus. And he's announcing it to you through those who preached the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so here's the picture. Between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, we get the Bible. Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, 66 books of the Bible. We have Old Testament prophets and we have eyewitness testimony. And all of them, to the, to the sufferings and the glory of Christ, all of Scripture points to Jesus. And here's the thing. Peter is saying, I know I saw Jesus. And although you haven't seen Him, you love Him. In other words... It's not based on what you see physically. Your love for Christ is not rooted in visible manifestations. Sometimes it's in the shadows. Sometimes it's in the dark places where we actually see him most clearly. But most importantly, Peter is arguing here that we today, thousands of years later, actually have a fuller picture of Jesus Christ and his life. Think about it. The apostles, the early disciples, they could only be in one place at once. And so they might have seen this miracle, but not that miracle. They might have heard this teaching, but not that teaching. And what do we get? We get the whole package, don't we? All of the witnesses come together and they write scripture. And so what we get to see of Jesus is Jesus in high definition. We get the full picture. And then he ends like this. Those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. There's that word again. Look, see. Now what, what are they doing? They, it seems like they're, they're not participating. This is a, a longing. 
The angels are longing. They're not participating. In fact, you could translate that they're, that they're on the outside looking in. The angels are on the outside looking in. The angelic host, the angels were there. Jesus' birth, remember announcing it. The angels were there. Jesus' temptation. The angels were there throughout Jesus' ministry. Life, death at the tomb. They were there. What are they doing here? And the answer is they don't lack knowledge. What they lack is participation. Because Christ didn't come to die and rise again for the angels. He came to do that for us. And here's the point that Peter is making. They're looking in from the outside. And their longing is what we get to enjoy. The angels don't know forgiveness of sin. The angels don't know unmerited mercy. The angels do not participate in adopting grace. The angels don't know what it's be to be adopted into the family of God. The angels don't know what it is to have your sins washed in the blood of Jesus. The angels don't know what it's like to be pardoned by a sacrifice. But we do, he's saying. We actually participate, although we don't see him physically. We have a blessed privilege of participating. That even the angels would prefer, they would be like, I'd swap places with you any day. Oh, but angels, you saw everything. Yes, that doesn't matter. You get to participate. Isn't that incredible? We get to taste and see. Taste and see. They just see. We get to taste and see. The prophets searched. The preachers proclaimed. The angels longed to know, what is it like to enjoy the blessings? What's it like, they say. And so by the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ, we today can be swept up into communion with Christ through the hearing of the word. What a privileged position. Suddenly the tables are turned. Oh, it, we would have chosen to be Peter or an angel, but hang on, hang on, before we get there too quickly, God's saying, no, no, you are more blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, Jesus said. And so what is God saying to us today? Well, firstly, your trials will not last forever. Secondly, your trials are being used by God for your growth for your faith. And lastly, we know this to be true because we see it in Christ and in His Word. We see. Have you seen? Have you seen? You don't need to rub your eyes. You just need to incline your heart. There's the eyes of your heart. Paul writes in Ephesians about the eyes of your heart being enlightened. Just bring those eyes closer to the word and you will see Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the glory of the gospel. It's not easy to hear that we get to share in Christ, which means we share in his sufferings as well as in his glory. But we would have it no other way, Lord. This is your way, and if it's your way, then it's definitely the best way. And so I pray that you would 
you would do two things today. Those of us that are already going through trials, those of us who are already in a place of difficulty, I pray for your comfort. I pray that you would comfort and that you would guide and that this word would be a, a fountain of fresh water over their hearts and lives. And then for those of us that are actually have it really good, I pray that we'd be equipped with this word because we never know the trial may be just around the corner. And I pray that you would sturdy us, Lord. Steady our feet, get us ready, equip us with a good understanding and help us all, no matter where we are in the journey of life, to process all of it through the lens of the gospel. You are a good God. And in this, we rejoice. In this, we rejoice with a joy inexpressible. But it's a real joy. And sometimes it's joy through tears. And sometimes it's joy in times of sorrow. But it's a deep, real joy because we've seen Jesus. And so I commit every person here to you, every person watching, every person listening, I pray that you would draw near to us in our time of trial especially. In Jesus' name, amen.